Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, we'll be discussing the new book by Dalia Candiotti, The Converso's Return, Conversion and Sephardi History in Contemporary Literature, published by Stanford University Press. Dalia is professor of English at the College of Staten Island at the City University of New York. Dalia, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Hi. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank. Uh, I really appreciate being here, and uh, and I'm looking forward to our to our talk. To begin, as a preliminary question, can I ask you a bit about yourself? Can you tell me a bit about your 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 personal upbringing? your inspirations in your academic journey? Were there any formative events in your life that inspired your academic journeys? I, I studied comparative literature at New York University. So my PhD is in comparative literature and I worked with Latin American, French and English language literature mostly. And and all that was due to my background in, in those languages growing up in Istanbul, Turkey, in a Turkish Jewish family. We had multiple languages around us, including Ladino or Judeo Spanish, French, Turkish, and then English in school. So all that fed into my intellectual interest too, in, in many ways. In graduate school, at, for my PhD, I had the privilege of working with the great Latin Americanist, Dr. Sylvia Malloy, who passed away not too long ago, unfortunately. But her, I immersed myself in Latin American and especially Argentine literature, but I was always in a comparative frame. And I became interested also in uh, migration narratives in Argentina and the U.S. And through that study, I was I also became interested in, in Latina, Latinx, Latinx literature. So I published my version of my dissertation of my first book, on migration narratives in the U.S., and that was a sort of a multiple multiple narratives of multiple diasporas. That was the subject of that book, and and then I turned my attention to more or less for the last fifteen years or more, actually, to to literature and Sephardic history. So literature about or by uh, Sephardic Jews literature about party diasporas post-Spain. I've always studied contemporary literature, but with this latest project, I also became interested in history, though I'm not a historian at all, but I'm, I'm more interested in the, in the reverberations of history. And, and I've been working outside of teaching as a grad student and teaching part-time. I've been working at the College of Staten Island City University of New York, basically my entire career. So um, I've been there. I've been there over two decades now. 
What message do you intend to convey to your readers through this book? Well, I'm trying to, I'm trying, the book basically tries to give a sense of what it means to return to a what was considered an ancient history, specifically the, the history of Sephardi Jews, and how that history reverberates today, and how that history is fictionalized, understood, narrated in our days. There isn't one particular message in the book, but there are you know, many dimensions to how we return to particular histories. And, and I think what, what one of the most important aspects of the book is that history is always being reshaped, including in, in fiction. And there are always newer ways of looking at looking at history, especially Sephardi history. What does your book's title mean? Can you explain its significance? Sure. So let's look at the the two the two terms in the title, the Converso's Return. So Converso refers to it's the Spanish term that refers to people who are converted in 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 the case of my book to uh, Christianity um, from Judaism in medieval Spain, usually under under circumstances of compulsion. So converso is a term that's used in scholarship and commonly to refer to people who were converted forcefully to Christianity in 14th and especially 15th, 15th centuries and remained, some of whom remained in Spain and Portugal where they had been living and some of whom are known to have migrated to what was then called the New World to to the continent of the Americas. Conversos were thought to be extinguished or extinct group because they had converted and they had, and presumably they had been integrated um, for better or worse and under better or worse circumstances into Christian society. And uh, other than the cases of those communities who had left, who had been able to leave Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula, and gone to um, the Ottoman Empire or the Netherlands or Italy or elsewhere where they could return to Judaism, they had stayed in the Iberian and, and some other and some other places that they had been and and became part of the you know majority Christian society in the case of Spain and Portugal societies. In the case of Spain and Portugal, of course, only Catholic Christians were allowed to be part of part of the the nation and the empire. And so 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 basically even 20 or 30 years ago, a prominent historian of Latin America had said that conversos were legally extinct and genetically submerged. Uh, that's a quote. But in fact starting especially in the 1980s and especially in New Mexico and elsewhere in the Southwest United States, as well as in Latin America, there has been a a return to knowledge of, consciousness of, and even identification with converse of history. In the Americas, this meant that people returned to what um, they knew or thought were their families actual origins. These were mostly Catholic people who, you know, in quotes, came out with 
the knowledge about their family's crypto-Jewish, you know, secret Jewish identities that had been hidden over the centuries, but some remnants of practices were kept. So there were revelations about Friday night practices, some ritual slaughtering practices that had presumably survived through the centuries. And so thousands of people uh, across the Americas returned to the knowledge of this, this history that their ancestors had been or might have been migrants from Iberia as Christians who had kept Jewish tradition secretly, secretly from the Inquisition, from the Inquisition in the Americas, and had preserved some of this identity, or else they had hidden it so well that it had disappeared, but individuals today discovered this identity anyway by doing research. So then there was a return to the consciousness of this history. It wasn't really the first time in the 20th century, in the 1930s, a community referred to as Mairanos were identified in northern Portugal by, by an American uh, businessman, in fact, and this caused a big wave of recognition that there were Christians in Iberia who were still known as or had identity as having been uh, Jewish uh, in the medieval times and and continued that identity. And, and and this created some consciousness and some recognition, but it was shut down soon enough in 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 Portugal. and and then it was only not not until the 1980s that people started returning to this identity. Now, I'm not, there are historians and some ethnographers who have, you know, studied these communities closely. I did not do community study. Mine is a textual one, but I looked at the way that conversos have returned to our imagination through the narratives that have been produced about current day and historical people and communities with with this Iberian Jewish background. And these narratives are fictions, mostly, but I also look at memoirs and how the sometimes the authors themselves return to these identities, or they are interested in this history, even if it has nothing to do with their own with their own story. So that's what that's what the that's what the title is. It's really about the reawakening of interest in recent times of what was supposed to be a remote and buried history, Iberian conversions from Judaism to Christianity. Can you describe the plots and main characters of the works that you examine here? Um, sure. So I have I study works in several different contexts and in several different languages including English, Spanish, French, and Turkish, because there's worldwide, since the 1990s or so, there's worldwide interest in topic. So, so I think that a, a comparative study like this was worked, worked well to show the extent of this interest. And so I, I looked at particular, particular narratives, and I can explain more about those. But first, I'll, I'll name them. So I looked at two novels by Latina authors, one of whom is Kathleen Alcala, Spirits of the Ordinary, which is a historical novel set in northern Mexico 
at the end of the 19th century, and it concerns both indigenous people of the of the of that area, northern Mexico and somewhat southwest United States, and a crypto Jewish family, and it, it looks at their intertwined fates. Kathleen Alcala is is a novelist based in Oregon. She's Mexican American, and she discovered her own Sephardi heritage, converted to Judaism, and is is, is member of a, a of a Jewish congregation. And she's very invested in the story in the history and in the Sephardic identity as well. With Kathleen Alcala, I looked at another novel from the 1990s by Achi Ovejas, the Cuban-American author, whose novel Days of Awe is about the Cuban, uh, Cuban experience, both in Cuba and in the United States. And it combines, it goes back and forth between the past and the present, and it combines stories of Cuban crypto Jews in the past, as well as Cuban Cubans before the revolution and uh, Cuban Americans who leave for the United States after the revolution. And so this novel is about the coming of age of a young Cuban American woman who faces both her Cuban identity in the United States and her father's crypto Jewish identity. So secret, uh, her father was a Catholic, but secretly practicing Judaism as well in in the novel. Um, Achieva has another author who discovered a Sephardic heritage and identifies with this heritage. Although, of course, both of the authors I just mentioned have other identities as well, besides the Sephardic one, whether it's Cuban, American, Chicano, Mexican, etc. I also, another chapter... I, I examined the memoir by Doreen Carvajal, who's an American journalist and writer. And her memoir, The Forgetting River, is about her the, her journey into, into the discovery of an unearthing of her own, again, converso crypto-Jewish background. And it's a memoir, but it's, it's written almost like a novel. It alternates it alternates between the the present and the past and it's a, it's a it's a it's kind of a quest narrative the quest is to find that identity to prove and find that identity that she is she she suspects she has her ancestral identity but it's the knowledge is buried and so she does research she moves to spain and so it's the story of looking for those origins looking for those roots juxtaposed with that is an incredible novel by the Spanish author Jose Manuel Fajardo, whose novel is called uh, the the his work that I that I look at closely is called uh, Mi nombre es Jamaica. My name is uh, Jamaica. It hasn't been translated into English, although it's been translated into other languages. And there, it's it, the novel is concerned with a main protagonist, Santiago, who's who's Christian but is an expert in Sephardi history. He's a Christian Spaniard and an expert in Sephardi history. And uh, when he's visiting Israel, he he, he has a moment in, in, in Sfat, uh, specifically, when he decides that he is Jewish and that he his ancestors were Jewish. Juxtaposed with Doreen Carvajal, Fajardo, Fajardo's novel tells the story of how one comes to 
discover an identity, how one identifies with certain ancestors, but meets with resistance because the counter point to this character in the novel is, is, an, is a Sephardic Jewish woman who's also a scholar and she challenges him on this on this kind of newly discovered identity and she views it as an appropriation so it's really more of a philosophical novel at the same time as a as a historical novel in which the characters debate what it means to recover an identity to discover recover and make an identity one's own and along with this in fact an indigenous story also gets incorporated into the novel because the character imagines that the character Santiago imagines that he's a descendant of the marriage between a Peruvian indigenous person and crypto Jew. So he invents a, an origin for himself that becomes a, a story also of Spanish empire story of forced conversions, story of the repression of the indigenous, and a philosophical debate about identity. In, in the, four other, the four other texts are featured in the other chapters. One is Edgar Morin's Vidal and his family, Edgar Morin being a French thinker and a sociologist, and his memoir in which he he valorizes crypto-Jewish and converso history and identifies with it, even though he is himself a normative Sephardi Jew of Salonican origins, whose parents had left Salonica to move to France. So he's a French intellectual, but he identifies with this history. And this is in, li along, in, in line with what the French called Maranisme, Maranismo Spanish, in other words, being invested in the Marano or Converso history. Marano was a pejorative term, but the and, and in English and in Spanish, Converso or Crypto Jew is used more frequently, but, but in France and Portugal, Marano is still used to refer to Conversos and Crypto Jews. And this history of the Crypto Jews had a had a big place in French Jewish but also non-Jewish intellectual history of the 1980s and 90s and Edgar Morin's memoir as much as he tells the story of his Salonican family Salonican father to be specific also partakes of this interest in the crypto Jewish identity and history along with Edgar Morin I looked at another American author but of Guatemalan background who's also Sephardic. His name is Victor Pereira. And he he's someone who grew up in, in Guatemala and from a Sephardic family of Salonican background who lived in Jerusalem and moved to moved to Guatemala. And so so he brings he brings all this background to bear on the, 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 an, an overview, a study of Sephardic history that he wrote that's very valuable volume, The Cross and the Pear Tree. And he, he, his is also a quest narrative. It's a memoir of looking for his origins, but he grew up in a normative Sephardic family with, you know, with that spoke Judeo Spanish and, and Spanish and other languages. But he also, like Edgar Morin, almost privileges his converso background and he finds all these Pereiras in in his archival research in Portugal and in Spain and elsewhere and a lot of them are Pereiras who were 
who were punished, killed by the Inquisition, and he identifies with them, and he 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 makes their story quite central to his memoir. So I look at why, and I look at also his novel, The Converso, in 1970. That was earlier text together. And finally, I there are two Turkish texts, and one of them was written in Turkish, and that's by Elif Shafak, and it's called <clears throat> The Mirrors of the City, Şehrin Aynaları in Turkish. And it's it's uh, it's about many things, but it's it's modeled, I mean, it's based on the story of the Cardozo brothers, Abraham and Isaac Cardozo, or Miguel and Fernando Cardozo, and their Christian names, who were conversos and and you know quote unquote returned to Judaism, and so in Shafak's book she follows the author, very well known Turkish author who now lives in England. She follows the story, but she also makes it her own in that she she invents a history for Abraham Cardozo who became a Sabbatian. So she 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 invents a history uh, of that that's transposed to ottoman history of the of the 17th century so this is a historical novel that stays in one period unlike unlike so many of the other texts that i studied so in 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 that way it's a it's a more conventional historical novel that keeps to that 17th century but it brings the ottoman and the spanish worlds together and also it has a very sort of supernatural and uncanny aspect that's that's different from the others from the other novels so all these apparitions jinns supernatural things happen while the cardozos are in are in or the 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 characters modeled after the cardozos are in spain and in and in istanbul and finally i studied yeshim tarnar's english language novel rembrandt's model which is about both conversos and conversos who became Sabbatians. And this this novel goes back and forth between the present period and the past, and from Montreal to Amsterdam to Istanbul. So we're constantly going back and forth between different places and looking at the fortunes of the conversos who returned to Judaism outside of Spain and Portugal, and then became uh, Sabbatians in Amsterdam and then um, and then became uh, Muslim afterwards and in both novels there's a very strong impetus to connect you know Sabbatian Turkish uh, you know Muslim and Jewish histories so in part that's that's what makes them really interesting and unique why are these authors returning to this history what are they trying to make us see about converso history or conversos today? Yes, yeah, so the authors are returning to this history now because they can, because there's more information about converso history, conversos, and their different trajectories, whether whether from Spain and Portugal they went to what other parts of Western Europe, Ottoman Empire, or to the Americas. There's just a lot more information about them. Secondly, there's the fact that the the current period, I mean, the, the period in that I'm looking at is from the 90s to roughly the 2010s is characterized by a greater awareness of Sephardi history in general. In part, 
that's because of the the 1992 commemorations of the expulsion of Jews from from Spain in 1492. It was a the quincentennial commemorations drew a lot of attention to to this to Sephardi history period, and so you had a lot of uh, memorizations, observations. Uh, some museums were set up in in Spain, in 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 Turkey. There were books and you know festivals and uh, you know observing of the uh, quincentennial uh, in that period. And in fact, a lot of the cultural production about Sephardi history is around the 1990s and then just before and then after so part there's a lot more attention to Sephardi history period but also it's because converso history is it is seen as a kind of a a lost chapter of Sephardi history but it's exactly what drew the attention of so many authors and 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 thinkers because first of all there are there's so many unknowns in it. Um, so on the one hand, we know so much more about Converso history and, and Sephardi history. On the other hand, there's still a lot of unknowns because after all, if if the people who converted stayed, stayed uh, were Christian but retained some Jewish practices, they had to do that in secret. And the main source we have for for this history is the Inquisition. So those people who were caught or those people who were falsely accused of quote-unquote Judaizing, meaning secretly practicing banned Judaism. So so there isn't too much information on those who stayed Christian and stayed and hid their identities or their practices. And of course, of those who of those who who migrated to the to the Americas from from Iberia. So there a lot there's a lot unknown and that's what that's what makes people curious. A novelist always likes a secret. And so so fiction writers of course are drawn to this. So besides the imagination that's spurred about the secret identity, I think it's it's also the idea that you know there's a duality that happens. So if one is outwardly Christian and privately Jewish, meaning you know they are practicing or they are aware that they have a Jewish background, which they have to hide, then a dual identity is created. And the dual identity production is also of interest to authors and and, and thinkers, because living doubly, right, having double identities is seen also as, as a currently existing condition, so that there are lots of parallels that authors and thinkers and and also historians draw uh, between the you know post medieval period and current current period where in dom- in minorities have to often hide or suppress part of their identities in dominant societies so there's so many parallels to this in the current period that a lot of authors in fact make these analogies in their fictions. So a convert or a crypto Jew from the 16th century could be like another minority today who has to hide their identity in order to be safe, in order to succeed for you know for whatever reason. That's another reason why authors are returning 
to hit to this history. For some, especially, but not only those who, the authors who identify as having conversal ancestors, or maybe they converted to Judaism, or even if they didn't, they have a, a strong feeling or identification. Putting these stories into fictional or memoir form is seen as a kind of redress because these communities had to disappear for all intents and purposes legally and in so many ways. It's the contemporary authors, just like some other individuals who are not authors, really want to make sure that this story is well known and is part of part of public discourse and part of collective memory. So so that they are redressing, they are recuperating something that has been unjustly suppressed, that the Jewish identity, but also the crypto-Jewish identity that might have followed the Jewish identity. So so that, you know, there's a sense that, well, let's say in the Americas, there are, you know, entire communities that that were suppressed and did not get to tell their own stories. So today, the fictions and the memoirs are doing that work, at least, you know, through the imagination or based on the the records that, that remain, based on some of the records that remain. So, and this is where the historical imagination connects with, with the fictional imagination and that obviously fiction writers invent stories, but but really the ones that I study try to, are, are visibly influenced by the historiography that they have been exposed to. And then there are so many gaps in those histories. We don't know how exactly how those communities lived in the 17th and 18th centuries, whether in Portugal or in northern Mexico and elsewhere. And so they invent, right, a historical possibility that what could have happened, what might have happened. Many of them are quite committed to, you know, bringing this history to the fore and not only to bring the to bring Sephardic history to the fore, but also to bring other histories into connection with Sephardic and Converso history. So I mentioned that a couple of the novels address address the periods and places where Jewish and indigenous faiths might have connected. We don't have too much evidence of this, but the authors imagine this. And so they bring together, bring together the possibilities of history, right? That they that individuals or communities might have shared a fate in the Americas in, in the post-conquest period. Similarly, the Turkish authors imagine a convergence, and, and I use this term a lot in the book, between Muslim and Jewish Spanish faiths. And of course, Muslims were also for the forcibly converted and they remained in Spain they remained in Spain after the the Jews who did not convert uh, were expelled but the Spanish Muslims who who converted who were called Moriscos also were expelled a little more than a hundred years after the Jews were expelled and so in their in their works Elif Shafak Ishim Tarnar and other novelists bring together characters who are you know, Spanish Muslims and Jews and are and and show sort of interconnected faiths. So so it's important, it seems important to these authors to not only 
bring to the fore Converso and Sephardic history, but to make connections with other histories, other memories as well. And and this is what Edgar Morin, the, the French thinker and sociologist, calls poly-rootedness, right? So um, so that our roots our roots come from multiple places and of course intersect with so many other peoples. Who did you write this book for? Who do you consider your ideal reader or readers? Who do you consider your imagined audience or audiences? Yeah, I didn't think of one particular audience, so I appreciate the plural there. I mean, I I wrote this book because I was really interested in in this idea that, you know, people are looking at something so old and and making it their own and writing about it and investing investing in it and looking at the present as a as a as a, as a space in which to recover and to address this history and its complications. So really anyone who's interested in 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 the past, anyone who is interested in Jewish studies or Jewish history, anyone in Latin American Latino studies, anyone looking at memoirs and genealogy. So it's a I tried to cast a wide net as wide as my the geographies that I'm looking at, you know, from Latin America to Turkey. So uh, my ideal audience is really someone who is interested in how we see the past, because again, this is not a historical book, but it's 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 invested in understanding of you know how how the past looks to us from here and now. What does your research teach us about the interconnections between history and literature? So one interesting thing about the books that I read, especially that I read and studied, especially the fiction books, is that they exhibit a lot of knowledge, a lot of historical knowledge. So authors are definitely learning from historians. And so that connection between history and literature is perpetuated by the authors themselves who immerse themselves in historiographies. And then do something else with them, right? And so, so it's really interesting that not only do they, you know, take some of the facts that are in historiography, but also in- incorporate historians' representations of conversos. For example, famous historians of conversos like Yosef Haimir Shami or Yirmiyahu Yovel and, you know, others who wrote about early modern converso conversos and converso identities as you know embodiments of modernity as embodiments of the modern self because as i mentioned before if conversos lived double lives uh, with a jewish background or jewish faith that they could not divulge and they lived as christians uh, publicly this for the historians meant that they they were uh, emblems of the modern self that's divided and in flux and they saw the historians saw conversos as paradigms of adaptability actually and so these paradigms are reproduced to a certain extent in in the fictions and even in the memoirs right that that kind of divide that in some of the fiction is represented as something that the characters are tormented by or 
are are really besieged by but but it's but it's there it's there as a uh, that idea of duality and ambiguity of identity is both in the historiography and in literature what fiction writers also do is comment on fiction uh, sorry a comment on historiography so like the text i mentioned by Jose Manuel Fajardo, in which two characters, uh, and they're a bit of a Don Quixote and Sancho Panza character, <laughs> and the Don Quixote character who imagines that he is Jewish, and the Sancho Panza character who is Jewish in this novel, and is trying to, you know, get some sense into the other character's head. They debate, you know, what is it, you know, what is it to go back to a history and and identify with it today. What is it to assume that one has Jewish ancestors and how does Jewish identity flow from Jewish ancestry? Uh, how does our knowledge of history intervene in I- ideas about ancestry? And so so in through metafiction, the fiction authors also comment on on, on the history and sometimes critique it, sometimes reproduce it, but but they they take it they take they take uh, historiography a step further. And finally, I use the term missing archives a lot in the book because both the memoir writers who are on a quest to discover their origins, to discover their converso origins to be specific, and the fiction writers are are explicitly referring to missing information and that being itself both an impetus to look at this history but also as a great loss right so that loss that that the suppression and persecution of jews and then and also of uh, conversos suspected of keeping jewish practices resulted in is is seen in in terms of loss in, in fictionalizing parts that are missing, right, in adding, you know, characters that might have had encounters, you know, with indigenous people in Mexico or Cuba or, you know, Jewish Muslim encounters and so on. They're making up, they are compensating for those missing archives, but they're also explicitly referring to them. So in the memoirs, there's a lot of, like by Doreen Carvajal or by Victor Pereira, there's a lot of you know, going to archives, not finding anything. Carvajal does genetic testing. It does not have the results she's looking for. So there's a lot of narrative of, you know, searching for things that are not found. And that in itself tells us that in itself becomes sign of all that is missing, uh, missing archive. And, And then the fact that so much is missing also makes us, you know, when we read their works, understand history differently. So if we know that there's only fiction here or there's only comment on how much is missing and how we cannot have certainty about what happened, the fates of crypto-Jews unless they were persecuted, it makes us question the existing historical record. And this, for 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 analyzing this, I, I relied a lot on Saidia Hartman's insights into, you know, missing archives in her book, Lose Your Mother, and in her essays, and also 
Aurora Levin's Morales' book, Remedios, is really important, which, and it does a similar kind of work in um, addressing what's missing in history and then explicitly placing history with Im- Im- imagined imagined characters, imagined events that that might have been. So, so I think that the works that I examine create a, a sort of a, a, a fictional archive instead of, um, or literary archive, you know, in lieu of a record, uh, an actual record about the past. But instead, it's a fictional archive of how history is perceived today. And one of the ways the history is perceived is that there's not enough of it, that it, it is missing too much, that there are too many gaps in it. So the, the conversation, the connection between history and literature um, is, is ongoing, and it's beyond, it's, it's really beyond just representing history with some, you know, fictional twists. Um, it's also a comment. Uh, the works provide a comment on, on history. What is meant by the notion of Morano as met- metaphor? Um, so Morano as a metaphor was uh, the title of an edited volume, edited by Elaine Marks, and um, it was, it, it referred to the fact that the Marano or the Converso or the Crypto Jew served as a metaphor for, for many other conditions um, other than the, the situation of, you know, Crypto Jews in Iberia or outside of Iberia, but that it served, um, as I mentioned, you know, the duality, the secrecy, the, perse- the persecution can be it was can be analogous to other minoritizations, uh, persecutions, and and hiding. In in that volume, it was about uh, the Jewish condition as a Marana condition period, in that um, Jews in at least in in modernity in the West had dual identities. One had to be private and hidden, and the other public. So um, that's how that book looked at it. But um, elsewhere in French thought, for example, the Maranoza can be seen as a metaphor for many other minority uh, situations. There's a quotation that I'd be curious to ask you about on pages 257 and 258. You write as follows, upon finding out about little known survivals, our sense of the past shifts and our historical consciousness is intensified. But returning to the past, to the present, without extensive archives and material remains is a difficult process that often involves the imagination, at which point truth claims and authenticity start competing. In narratives about crypto-Jews, the production of the individual self as a remnant and as an embodied archive of an otherwise little-documented past involves vastly varying resources, ranging from oral cultures, rumors, and gossip to historical speculation and advanced genetic technology, paramemories, recollections, and enactments of ancestral experiences in the body flow. From this productive and problematic conception of the self as the carrier of an ancient secret narrative. Can you elaborate on this passage for us, both in its own context and also in the context of broader themes in your work that shed light on phenomena of collective memory. How do the themes embedded in this passage, for example, 
relate to Marianne Hirsch's scholarship on post-memory or Michael Rothberg's insights on multi-directional memory. How does this passage relate to broader themes in your book and broader themes in the study of collective memory? Okay, thank you. Um, so, um, as I mentioned, um, the post-1992 um, awareness of uh, Sephardi history, um, I think, uh, greatly sh is shaping contemporary Sephardi memory as we have more interest and more knowledge about it. So, um, so the book means to make a contribution to our understanding of uh, Sephardi collective memory in in general, and then um, and then memory about conversos in the present, uh, in particular, and to to look at how um, how these authors examine crypto-Jewish or commercial subjectivity, I use um, some terms and um, and I'll explain them in in light of the, the theories that you mentioned, the concepts that you mentioned, um, Marianne Hirsch's uh, notion of post-memory and Michael Rothberg's um, on multi-directional memory. Um, so so um, Marianne Hirsch um, talks about sort of intergenerational memory or as post-memory um, as one that's uh, mediated by the, the experiences of the previous generation. So in other words, people inherit their uh, parents' traumatic uh, memories and make it their own without necessarily experiencing them. Um, and she also uh, talks very fruitfully about um, mediation of other kinds of memory as well uh, that uh, we might uh, absorb uh, as our own in some ways. I talk about uh, collective memory in ways that very much overlap with this notion of uh, post-memory because I look at both memoirs and fiction that that are about people having um, identities and even memories that um, they did not experience and that they are far removed from. However, the removal is much more than one generation for um, the characters and uh, the real people who have who are re-identifying as having converso ancestors and identifying as converso descendants or even as um, as Jews. And um, that there's a gap of hundreds of years between this re-identification and um, an incorporation of an ancestral converso memory and the actual experiences of crypto Jews for most people and most of the characters. However, despite that gap, there is there is um, a lot of ways in which the characters and the real people um, experience the past as being very proximate, being very key to their identities now, uh, even if the converso identity was not something that they knew about until they were adults. And what happens in some cases, especially for those people who are very convinced that, you know, their families are 
either hiding or just unaware of something that they know about their Jewish ancestors. And often um, this is felt in the body. And so this um, is manifested in Doreen Carvajal's memoir, in Fajardo's novel, and in so many other uh, narratives where the body has sort of symptoms of that that reveal the past. And for example, uh, Carvajal in Spain, um, she she writes about experiencing fear, uh, experiencing anxiety, feeling feeling her environment as if her ancestors are have left traces uh, in her in her body. So looking at the body as a repository as an archive almost where you know there may not be an experience of persecution but that the body has kept it through the centuries is this was what i'm calling sort of paramemory uh so it's something you know that's um uh a memory uh, or something that acts like a memory but is really beyond memory so it's transmitted through the body genealogically without sort of previous generations contributing to the uh, to this memory at all necessarily so it's it's a little bit different from post memory but it's definitely um overlaps with it and i so so with this notion of paramemory and what i call the embodied archive the body as an archive i try to sort of you know add that to our understanding of what collective memory is and how you know how mediated memories can show up um, in in the body. So I'm hoping that answers your question about you know how I propose to contribute to collective memory. And then in terms of Rothberg's idea of multidirectional memory, well, that it, I'm also very close to concept uh, of Rothberg's and in terms of understanding particular events in history, in, in his case, the Holocaust history and memory in connection uh, with other traumatic events and how bringing together, having sort of encounters between you know colonial memories of colonial trauma and Holocaust memory can be productive, uh, not competitive, but comparative and productive. So all the authors that I mentioned um, that, that are I study in the book and uh, whose you know plots I tried to uh, summarize just very briefly are um, also bringing together multiple, you know, usually traumatic uh, memories. I call these um, narratives of convergence because the authors are not uh, kind of, juxtaposing and making separate memories speak, like, you know, post-Holocaust and post-colonial memories that are not historically connected in very explicit ways, but but they are looking at convergences that, that, that possibly and probably happened that we don't know about in history. So uh, it's not bringing separate memories together, so much as operating from the idea of, you know, the missing archive and how, of course, there was 
interaction between you know the Spanish and the and the Jewish uh, converts and what could they what in in post uh, 1492 Iberia and what could those have been uh, let's imagine that right or you know what could have been the uh, contact between indigenous people and and the conversos who were all uh, at different times might have been hiding uh, their identities so it's really the narratives of convergence are addressing histories that are lost, but that were possible. So in that way, it's it's a bit different from uh, Rothberg's multi-directional memory. There's another quote I'd like to ask you about on page 144. You write as follows. The contemporary period has seen Spain's transition to democracy and its bona fide inclusion in the new European identity with Pedro Almodovar, Penelope Cruz, Arturo Perez Reverte, and other icons, not to mention its international fashion brands, disseminating its culture globally as never before in the modern period. The Europeanization of Spain, previously considered other to the continent, brought with it a revival of its past. The post-Franco era has been characterized as elsewhere in Europe and post-dictatorship Latin America by intense debates around history and memory, culminating culminating legally in 2007 with the law of historical memory. In Spain, as in Latin America, historical writing and fiction have taken stock of 20th century dictatorship, repression, and mass murder with reference to their antecedents, including especially in inquisitorial Spain and the colonization of the Americas. As we have seen, the Inquisition served as an allegory for a repressive contemporary period in Latin American novels at the same time as its stories revived consciousness about past violence as always racially, politically, and economically motivated. In post-Franco Spain, reimagining the medieval and Inquisition period was urgent. Writers and artists demanded that the country recognize the entirety of its stained past and acknowledge the Jewish and Muslim stamp on Spanish culture and the key components of conversion and conquest that led to the making of today's Spanish nation and in part the Atlantic world. Can you elaborate on this passage? In particular, how does this passage specifically and your book more generally underscore the importance of the study and memory of the Spanish Inquisition? Okay, so... um... So as I said, I, I this is not a, a his, history book, and it's not a study of the Spanish Inquisition per se. However, it certainly um, addresses uh, how the Spanish Inquisition is viewed today. And coming back to the the quote that um, um, that you just read, post Franco Spain was a time to revisit not only uh, the Spanish Civil War and the the Franco era, but also Spain's other pasts, including especially in the conquest of of the Americas, and of course its expulsion of Jews and and Muslim converts. So, Spain, Spanish in Spanish culture, as elsewhere, really. The period from the 80s on, 
there was a, a great kind of memory boom, as Andreas Husen called it, in trying to compensate for all the forgetting, all the repression of, of the previous decades um, in the case of Spain under Franco, and bring to the fore all the kind of repressed histories in order to recognize, possibly reconcile with, and uh, possibly compensate for those histories. So not that everybody was on board with this. Of course, there was always um, dissent, but but it did, um, especially with the passing of the Law of Historical Memory in 2007, there was a great outpouring of memory with relation to the Civil War, but also um, with the other histories that I mentioned. And so the Inquisition was one historical phenomena that that was revisited in Spanish culture, historiography, fiction, cinema, and so on. And the Jewish past became, along with the 1992 commemorations of the expulsion, became a key uh, in, in Spanish reconsideration of its past and retooling, um, revisiting of its identity um, in the post-Franco era as a Western democracy. The Jewish uh, past uh, was, was certainly not the only one that, that became important, but, um, but it certainly was played a role and it was manifested in in many ways. One of them, besides cultural production, as I mentioned, novels, films, etc., uh, one of the ways was the passing of a new law in uh, 2015, um, uh, offering citizenship to descendants of Spanish Jews who were expelled or forcibly converted. And so this meant was meant to be a reconciliation, a reconciliatory move uh, with uh, Sephardi, global Sephardi population. And uh, and in fact, that law was also passed in 2015. It was limited. It expired, Spain's law expired in 2019, and Portugal's uh, is expiring this year. But, but it became key evidence that Spain is facing its its past and is also trying to compensate for it with this offer of citizenship to those who qualified and to those who could apply. Because um, the Converso, uh, Converso history was not recognized as much as other aspects, the, the main aspects of um, Sephardi history and culture, I think so many novelists um, and memoirists um, turned turned their attention to it because the Inquisition still uh, looms large uh, looms large in this in 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 this in Spain's past, and um, and the Inquisition was created to root out Christians who were practicing Judaism. The Spanish Inquisition. Um, was central to the um, re-evaluation of Spain's past in the post-Franco period. So, of course, with that, Jews became central, and uh, although not not the only element in that re-evaluation. How do the texts that you examine here 
present the aesthetics of neo-Ottomanism? Um, so, so neo-Ottomanism, I looked at that in two texts. I, I just wanted to add something, though, to the previous question, if sure. you don't mind, because I mentioned citizenship and conversos, but all this sort of flowed out of the idea of philosophardism or what we call philosophardism, this uh, kind of investment and interest in Sephardic past of Spain, and the way in which for since the beginning of the 20th century and Spain's rediscovery of its Sephardic diaspora, especially through Senator Angel Pulido, was determined to, to a great extent how Spain views its uh, Jewish past. So I just want to say a couple of things about that. So this idea that when, when the Spaniards discovered that there is a continuing Spanish-Jewish population, uh, communities uh, across the Middle East and North Africa that are still speaking uh, Spanish, a kind of ancient Spanish that mixed with other languages. Um, they developed sort of these um, fantasies of about this community that became, both valorized the community, but also looked at it as an exotic other. And um, the fantasy also uh, was about the loyalty of Sephardic people to Spain, the continuing loyalty through the centuries. Sephardic people as a regenerative force that made Spain a more modern place. And all these early 20th century notions continued to a certain extent um, in the post-Franco period. And it's manifested uh, in official discourses to this day, including in the language of the preamble of the law um, offering citizenship to, to uh, descendants of Spanish Jews. Uh, where that which is, asserts that, um, and I'll quote, um, the children of Separad maintain an abundance of nostalgia, immune to the transformation of languages and generations. So, uh, end of quote. Um, so, this idea that Sephardic Jews had nostalgia for Spain really informed uh, both the law, um, the offering of citizenship and uh, official views of, of Jews. So early 20th century philosophardism about sort of the Sephardic Jews being both a part of the nation's history and an exotic other uh, continued in different ways. And, and a scholar uh, named um, Alphonse Aragoneses calls this neo-philosophardism because you know, it's it's combined with a multiculturalist, tolerant view of Spain, uh, of contemporary uh, Spain as a Western democracy, but it draws on older ideas about loyalty and so on. Now, com the converso issue, um, in fact, um, complicates all this because um, if conversos were cut off from their past, um, then the question of loyalty uh, to uh, a Spanish past um, does not necessarily uh, to a Spanish past in in a Jewish um, uh, in a Jewish context does not necessarily obtain. Yet, conversos were also descendants of conversos also qualified for the citizenship and and have received um, citizenship. So, so the post Franco period um, with its you know burgeoning of 
um, recognition and even embrace of Spain's Jewish past with you know all the tourist um, industry, um, uh, the tourist sector um, development of Jewish sites, um, you know, invented Jewish sites or reinvented um, Jewish sites, uh, excavations, um, new museums, the citizenship law um, is really interesting because it is a facing of, of a particular history, but it, at the same time, it buries it under these, these old notions of um, loyalty and otherness and so on. Um, sorry to have interrupted you, so I'll come back to your other question now. And um, please. And yeah. Um, so neo Ottomanism um, is something I look at in the in my last chapter in on on the Turkish authors, and that refers to um, it largely refers to a, a political project of uh, Republican Turkey um, uh, seeking. Uh, recent, uh, recently seeking um, leadership again in in the Middle East, you know, hearkening back to the era when the Ottomans ruled um, uh, the Middle East and and its environs. Um, but culturally speaking, it meant that um, Ottoman the the Ottoman culture, including its suppressed elements like. Uh, linguistic um, elements, cultural elements were, uh, and, and other cultural elements were brought back, fashions, cuisines, and so on in the 1980s and 90s. And there's also a, a an understanding of the Ottoman period as a, a period of tolerance in which um, uh, multiple faiths uh, and uh, languages and uh, communities could um, cohabit, co could coexist, as indeed Jews did um, coexist with their Christian and uh, Muslim uh, neighbors. And so this somewhat of an idealization of an Ottoman past is feeds this idea of you know, neo-Ottomanism, kind of recovering that period and um, of tolerance and uh, bringing it back today, uh, uh, you know, when we are in an intolerant time. That's that's the idea. And the two novels that I look at, the Turkish novels, in the way in which they bring together, you know, uh, Jewish and Muslim um, uh, characters and also some Christian ones, um, I think, to a certain extent, draw on this idea of the Ottoman Empire as a space of uh, coexistence, but then they take it to a whole other direction. How are Shabtai Svi and the movement known as Sabatianism depicted in the works you study in this work? Yeah, so again, the two authors, Edif Shafaka and Yeshim Tarnar, have um, main characters um, who are uh, Sabatian. And in fact, Yeshim Tarnar's novel is really focused on the fate of uh, Sabbatians, and but all starting from converso Jewish characters who, uh, you know, either confront their past, return to Judaism, uh, and so on. But some of whom embrace uh, Sabbatianism after so so converting to Christianity and then becoming Sabbatian, converting to Christianity and then 
reconverting to Judaism and then becoming Sabbatian. Um, so, you know, all these kind of multiplicities um, and all the, the this very complicated trajectory is traced in a fictional way in, in their works. Um, and um, Sabbatai is not uh, depicted as a failed messiah, um, but in but but the Sabbatians are depicted uh, in you know mostly a sympathetic way and in terms of their own struggles of you know survival and identity. These are all fictional characters, um, except for the Cardozo, the 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 characters who are who are based on the Cardozo brothers of the 17th century in Shafak's novel. Um, but even, you know, the details, um, you know, are invented by her. Um, so they are depicted as um, just regular characters and, um, you know, in their struggles and in their, uh, in their fates and fortunes. But both authors also bring a supernatural aspect to their depiction of the characters and the events around them. And um, so um, Shafak's novel especially, but really both of them uh, underline the sort of uncanniness uh, of all these conversions, repressions, hiding, re-emerging, escaping. Um, and so Shafak really looks at the, the fears and the um, the um, abjectness that results from from the repressions as an uncanny kind of element in which there are you know all these um, supernatural events that happen. There are um, you know figures from the Quran, from from folk culture um, like jinns and who are uh, who are you know kind of fantastical, and um, and then the Sabbatian um story both in Shafak and in Ternar um is seen as something kind of beyond um beyond the daily and beyond um beyond the sort of a, a mundane uh imagination so you know in Ternar you have lizards coming out of books and um you know people flying and so so I mean that's not the dominant uh, motif but the fears and persecutions are are represented, um, especially of Sabbatians, but not only, um, also of conversos are represented in these, you know, very uh, fantastical and supernaturalistic uh, ways. To the extent that you would feel comfortable, can you comment on the relationship between this book that we've been discussing? and your recently published book on reparative citizenship for Sephardi descendants. How are the two pieces of scholarship interconnected and interrelated? Um, thank you for asking that. So yes, I co-edited um, a book called uh, Reparative Citizenship for Sephardi Descendants with um, uh, Professor uh, Rina Ben-Mayor. And um, and this book really um, is is uh, based on a project that uh, Rina and I started um, in oral history. Um, Rina being a prominent oral historian, uh, she and I um, interviewed uh, about seventy 
um, people who are descendants of Sephardi Jews, uh, who may or may not identify as Sephardi Jews themselves, who are applied for Spanish or Portuguese citizenship. And um, and so, and this oral history um, archive is going to be available at the University of uh, Washington. Um, and we decided to edit a book um, on the question of um, the the Spanish and Portuguese laws in that that came out in 2015, as I had mentioned. Um, and so this book has um, many essays by um, scholars from many countries, um, you know, writing and teaching in different languages from Latin America to uh, the US and Spain and Turkey. Um, and they each look at a different facet of, of the citizenship laws. Now, and, and Rina and I each have an essay on, on the citizenship based on our archive of oral histories. Uh, Rina writes about emotions and citizenship, and I write about um, converso descendants who applied for citizenship. So I had started this project before I finished my book on Converso's return, and not realizing at the start of the project that it was not only kind of normative Sephardi Jews who could apply for citizenship, but really any descendant um, who had one ancestor, just they had to identify a single ancestor who was Jewish or um, uh, Converso and could qualify for applying for citizenship. And so uh, once I realized that there was more and more overlap between my monograph Converso's return and the oral history project that um, we had started because we were interviewing people from, you know, Mexico or New Mexico and Texas and um, 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 Venezuela and uh, who, who had uh, applied for citizenship based on their Jewish ancestor. Um, usually a single ancestor um, that they discovered through um, church records, ironically, um, and in in other ways. So the two projects kind of converge, and I could see how, um, especially the people uh, I interviewed who had previously known of their ancestry before the laws were passed, and who had, you know, especially were invested in this and doing research about their um, identity through genealogical research and so on, um, they their discourse and their understanding of identity was very similar to actually the fictions that I was looking at and the other memoirs I was looking at, even if they were not themselves writers. Um, and so some of the tropes about dual identity, um, kind of sympathy for persecuted ancestors, uh, want, find, not finding enough archives um, to, to understand more about their ancestry and their trajectories. They all kind of came together in my interviews as well. And I wrote one chapter of this edited volume about the Converso descendants whom we interviewed, um, about 17 of them, 17 out of the 70 that we interviewed. So the two projects converged um, 
uh, in really uh, interesting ways, although one is a literary study, Converso's Return, and um, the other one's an oral historical study, uh, my, uh, my contribution to the edited volume, which is a multidisciplinary uh, volume with historians and anthropologists and, um, and cultural critics and so on. So that was a really interesting convergence between the two projects. I thank you for asking me that that question. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book, as well as since you completed um, the other recently published book of yours on reparative citizenship for Sephardic Jews? Where have your thoughts, where has your attention gone since accomplishing these two achievements? Um, well, so there are some continuities. Um, we're still working on the oral history archive, for example, um, and, um, and, and talking about um, doing another um, similar project uh, in oral history with um, uh, Sephardi, um, Sephardi Jews or Sephardi Jewish descendants. Um, I'm also looking uh, more at um, Jewish literature from Turkey, and I'm uh, considering sort of uh, uh, writing in Turkish and um, writing in other languages with um, origins in uh, in Turkey. So, um, so I have a couple of articles in mind, and that might turn into a book. Uh, we'll see. Amazing. Um... I wish you the very best with your subsequent work. I hope it will be blessed with every good thing that can possibly come from scholarship. Thank I hope you so you'll be much. Blessed with new wisdom. I hope you'll be blessed with epiphanies, with breakthroughs, and that it will be an intellectually and spiritually fulfilling endeavor. Thank you. Those are such beautiful words. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for inviting me. It was my hallowed honor. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm your host on the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Dahlia Kendiati. She is professor of English at the College of Staten Island in the St City University of New York. We have been discussing her book, The Converso's Return, Conversion and Sephardi History, in Contemporary Literature, published by Stanford University Press. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.